Am? Oh, thank you. Excellent. So we're reading today from Ephesians, uh, and we're reading through chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And sorry, I'm competing with someone doing some pruning over there, but hopefully you can hear me okay. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly written. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mel. Let's pray as we uh, look into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for speaking good news to us through the gospel. And that as we read your scriptures uh, on every page, you point us to Christ uh, and help us to grow in him today. Amen. One community, proudly diverse. Uh, These are the words that used to emblazon Brunswick Town Hall just uh, around the corner from where Ale and I live. You might have seen them. And they really kind of sum up the values of our area. Um, 
It says it on the council website as well. Moreland will be known for its proud diversity. And diversity is a deep value in this part of Melbourne and, and probably across lots of Melbourne, actually. And, and I love this about our area. Alan, I love walking around and enjoying the beauty of diversity in our area. Uh, we enjoy uh, seeing the different people of different ages and backgrounds, the different styles of gardens and parks, uh, the different restaurants and cuisine that are within walking distance. Melbourne is a vibrant multicultural city, as you know, people from so many different places and cultures, all contributing to this beautiful diversity that we enjoy. Uh, in a place like this, I don't have to say much uh, to convince you of the beauty of diversity. And yet that phrase, one community proudly diverse, uh, it captures the challenge of diversity too. When diversity is valued so highly, what unites us? What unites the community? Are we united simply because we live in the same geographical region? Uh, Are we united because we all value diversity? And if so, then how do we hold together that diversity, uh, especially when there's conflicting views in that diversity uh, on some of the bigger questions of life? All cultures offer some answers to life's most profound questions. Who am I? Where do humans come from? What is our purpose? What's a life worth living? Different cultures have different answers. Diverse communities give different answers, very diverse answers to these profound questions. And so there can be tension, even conflict sometimes, between these views. And so one approach in our secular West is is to ignore these questions, to put them to one side. We just avoid them as far as possible in public discussion. Uh, We call them a private affair. We don't talk about them, don't raise politics or religion at a dinner party. We'll keep religious education out of schools as far as possible and then we can just sidestep the whole issue. And yet, unfortunately, these deeper convictions keep popping their heads up at the most awkward moments, particularly when we're discussing questions related to humanity and the human person around the beginning and end of life, our sexuality, even our approach to disease management and the pandemic sometimes. These all expose our deeper connection, our deeper conviction, sorry, and soon our diversity becomes disagreement and conflict. So main, maintaining this diverse community is incredibly difficult in the modern world, and it was even more difficult in the ancient world in which the gospel was first preached. Because there was just as much diversity. Different languages and cultures and religions are all meeting together in the big cities and the commercial hubs like the city of Ephesus. And this led to lots of conflict. And and the biggest divide culturally and religiously was between Jews and Gentiles. On the one hand, uh, the Jews rejected all idols and they looked down on on Gentiles or non-Jews because they worshipped idols and weren't part of God's chosen people. Some rabbis taught that Jews shouldn't eat or even associate with non-Jews. For their part, the Gentiles gave as good as they got. 
The Roman poet Juvenal describes Jews as those who worship only the clouds in the sky and he mocks their Sabbaths and circumcision. It didn't help that a Gentile king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, if I'm saying his name right, uh, he conquered Jerusalem in 167 BC, killed thousands of Jews and even sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. Uh, He sacrificed it to Zeus. Talk about rubbing salt in the wounds of of the Jewish people. And so for many Jews, God's salvation meant salvation for Jews, but judgment and condemnation and destruction for Gentiles. Uniting across this diversity was not a priority. But now we have this letter, Ephesians, which we've been listening to the last couple of weeks. And it's written by a Jewish man, Paul. And did you notice how this chapter starts? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul, a Jew, is a prisoner for the sake of some Gentiles. Right? This would be like Sydney going into a voluntary lockdown just out of solidarity with Victoria. Right? <laughs> It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. Why would a Jew suffer for the sake of the Gentiles? So Paul has to explain himself. Why are you doing this? But why would you do this? So he talks about a mystery that has been revealed. A mystery revealed. Like any good mystery, uh, this one's been shrouded in secrecy for years. It was not made known to people in other generations. But somehow this mystery is going to explain why a Jew would not only associate with Gentiles and write to them, but would be willing to go to prison for them and suffer for them. What secret mystery could possibly overturn all those cultural and political and religious barriers that stood between the Jews and the Gentiles and bring them together? Now there have been some rumours and hints about this mystery Abraham was told that through him his descendant and his descendants all the nations would be blessed. Isaiah had spoken about a light for the Gentiles. There were hints, but nothing more. Even the best minds, the best philosophers and scholars hadn't worked out this mystery until God revealed it. Verse 5 continues. Now it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles. Paul's one of those apostles and the prophets. So God has revealed this mystery now. It's an open secret. And what is this secret mystery that's now revealed? Well, it's right there in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Christ, Gentiles are now included and accepted into God's family alongside Jews. We could say that God is making a new people, no longer Jew or Gentile, but a new people open to both. And so now Gentiles stand to inherit all these blessings of God that have been promised to Israel. God's guidance and rule. God's word to them. His protection and provision. 
a future and a place in his kingdom. They are equally privileged in Christ. More than that, uh, it's, uh, we see that Jews and Gentiles are united together in Christ. They're members of one body, it says. That means they have to work together now. They have to care for each other. And they're sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So everything that Christ has promised, the the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, intimate relationship with God, a place in the new creation, the gift of his spirit now, all these promises are now shared equally by Gentiles. So can you see how God finds a way to unite Jews and Gentiles in their diversity? He overcomes their hostility to one another. And because of his grace, he invites them both into his new people. Uh, This new people that we call the church. The community of those who belong to Christ. Now, notice, Gentiles don't become Jews. And Jews don't become Gentiles. No, they both become Christians, new people. And they find a home in God's church together. And so now, in God's eyes, Gentiles in Christ are on equal terms with Jews in Christ. But Paul is in no way superior to these Gentiles uh, in Ephesus. He's now on a, a level playing field with them and sees them as partners and members of the same body. And this is why he is willing to suffer for them. God revealed this mystery to Paul and to the other apostles and prophets, but it didn't stop there. The mystery revealed was only the first gift to Paul. The second is down in verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So God gave the gift of revealing this mystery to Paul, but he also gave him the gift of being a servant of this gospel. What does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? Well, if we keep reading in verse 8, Paul's going to explain for us. Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Did you hear it there? A servant of the gospel is someone who preaches the gospel. God commissions Paul to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Uh, A little while ago, I read P.G. Woodhouse's novel, Uneasy Money. I'm not sure if you've read it. Uh, In this book, the lawyer Jerry Nichols calls his old friend Bill Dawlish uh, to come into his office. When Bill arrives, Jerry tells him that a certain American millionaire has died, uh, an American millionaire that Bill had hardly met. He's died and he's left Bill uh, about a million pounds. Right? Bill has just received an inheritance that he never saw coming. We might say in this book, Jerry is a servant of this good news uh, because he tells Bill about it. Well, in the same way, the servant of the gospel tells the Gentiles that they now stand to receive an inheritance that they never saw coming. The boundless riches of Christ. This is the mystery proclaimed. The mystery's been revealed, but 
Uh, It's been revealed by the Spirit to the apostles and prophets, but now it's proclaimed and preached to the world. And if you look carefully in this passage, you'll see that the gospel is proclaimed to three overlapping audiences. Uh, Firstly, in verse 8, it's proclaimed to the Gentiles. So like Bill Dawlish in the book, they need to be told that they stand to receive this great inheritance. The Apostle Paul began this work, but there are still Gentiles today who may not even be aware of the boundless riches offered to them by Christ. Actually, this was me. I grew up in a a Gentile family. I'm not from a Jewish background. And I had only the vaguest idea of the, the hope and meaning and purpose that Christ offers until I'd heard the gospel preached. Maybe this is you today. Maybe you're just discovering for the first time this gospel and just beginning to grasp the boundless riches of Christ. We'd love to help you grasp it more fully. We realise that this is a task that is not finished. Proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles is the same today as it was in Paul's day. It's not preaching in the sense of stuffing things down people's throats. It's one thirsty beggar pointing another to the spring of living water. It means courageously inviting people to turn from their idolatry, to turn to Christ and to join God's new family. Thankfully, Paul and others were diligent in this work because if they hadn't been, as I said, I wouldn't be standing here today. If the gospel hadn't been proclaimed to Gentiles for generation after generation, if Gentiles hadn't been invited into the church, then I wouldn't know Jesus today and I suspect that's true for many of us here, actually. And yet there are still so many who haven't been invited, who haven't had that invitation to turn from their idolatry be it the idol of diversity or self-expression or the cult of career progression or any of the other things that are worshipped today, to turn from those things and instead to trust in Christ and to join God's new community that he is uniting across the diversity of humanity. This work of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles is not over. If this mystery has been revealed to us, then it's only right that we too play our part in sharing this good news. So that's the first audience, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Then in verse 9, there's a second audience for this proclamation. To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept, kept hidden in God who created all things. Proclaiming the mystery of the gospel means more than just inviting Gentiles in. It also means letting everyone know just what their creator God is up to. For ages past, he kept this mystery hidden. And now there's this new people appearing, this church. So what's going on, God? What are you doing? Part of proclaiming the gospel, then, is explaining the church. It's helping people to understand that in Christ, God is bringing unity to human diversity. And I think this step is actually really important because there's, there's quite a lot of misinformation or misunderstanding out there about this. God is not erasing diversity and creating a monoculture. 
right? We don't lose our identity or our individuality when we come to church. If you go to church in Nigeria, it's very different to a church uh, in China or a church in Australia. God doesn't just erase our diversity. But we are all transformed. When we come under Christ's rule, we're no longer the same. We have a new allegiance and a new spirit. This is what unites us. This is what unites us with the church in Nigeria and the church in China and other churches in Australia and around the world, of course. We all follow Christ as Lord and we all share his spirit. And so part of proclaiming the gospel then, particularly in our context, is helping people understand what the church is all about. It's not bland cultural conformity. And nor is it everyone for themselves diversity. It's diverse people united in Christ. And we can do this in small, almost incidental ways. Imagine the conversation with a workmate. So you, you go to church. What's that about? Is it like a, a sports club or a, you, know, you get together with friends there? Like, well, no, it's a bit different actually. We, we have people with all different backgrounds and ages and interests. Church is God bringing together diverse people and uniting us under Jesus. It's a new community. It's a new tribe. We can help others to understand what the church is all about uh, just by the way we talk about it. So the mystery is proclaimed to Gentiles to invite them in. It's proclaimed to everyone to explain what God is doing in the church. Then there's a third audience there in verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The rulers and authority in the heavenly realms. Who are these rulers and authorities? Well, they come up again, actually, in uh, Ephesians in chapter 6. And there it's clear that these are spiritual forces of evil. Uh, powerful, but not all powerful like God. We might think of them as the spiritual forces behind the idols that enslave and ensnare people. Powerful, but not too powerful for God to rescue and redeem people from. And they're also not all-knowing. And we can see that in this passage because God actually wants to reveal something new to them. He wants to reveal his manifold wisdom to them through the church. They need to learn. And the church is going to school them. You and I, that, that's us. As we gather here today from our range of diverse backgrounds, united under Christ, we're teaching them a lesson about God's manifold wisdom. Uh, I do need to confess, though, I don't actually know what the word manifold means. <laughs> Probably some of you can help me. I, I used to have a housemate, Dan. Uh, he used to talk a lot about manifolds. But he also had a hotted up Ford, and I'm pretty sure he was trying to tell me about something in the engine there. So I don't think he's uh, got much help for us here. I had to do some research, uh, and it turns out that the word translated here has the sense of uh, many-coloured or, or multifaceted. It could describe a, a bright garland of flowers or a colourful coat. 
we could understand the manifold wisdom of God as the, the multicolored wisdom of God, the, the diverse wisdom of God. So where is God's multicolored, manifold wisdom displayed? It's displayed through the church, through us. Isn't that amazing? As we gather here at St. Jude's in Parkville, there's something heavenly going on and the spiritual forces of darkness are looking on with their jaw dropping to see God's manifold, diverse wisdom at work amongst us. They see God bringing together people from diverse backgrounds to unity and fellowship in Christ. We talk here about being God's family on mission. And I had to tell you, but the mission part is actually unavoidable. Even just by being here at church today, uh, we are bearing witness to God's wisdom. We are part of his mission. We're already part of it. You're already helping to proclaim this mystery of the gospel, making God's incredible wisdom known just by gathering here together today under Christ. But this morning, I want to invite us to go a step further. I want to invite you to enter the mystery. Enter the mystery. What do I mean by that? Well, the mystery's been revealed, the mystery's been proclaimed, but this mystery is not just something to understand. It's a reality to participate in. It's something to enter into. Thinking about our story again, it's not enough for Bill just to know about his inheritance. He needs to to receive it. He needs to respond to that news. He needs to enjoy it, right? It's not enough just for him to know that, in theory, he might get some money. And so there's two ways that we enter into this mystery the boundless riches of Christ. And the first is hinted at in verse 17. Let Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. Not just visit. Let him set up his home. Let him dwell. Let him take over. Let let him make himself at home and be in charge. You're invited to join God's multicolored, diverse people. His boundless riches are for you and you receive this gift by trusting Christ, by letting him dwell in your heart by faith. This means trusting him when he asks you to turn away from living for yourself. It means trusting him when he uh, asks you to let him lead and govern your life. Because you have a new allegiance, a new tribe, and so your life will change. You also gain a new family as you do this, You get brothers and sisters in the church. Like every good family, we have our own traditions and rituals. We have some quirky characters and we're just a little bit crazy. At least that's my family and I suspect it's yours too. And yet somehow, somehow God is uniting us in all our diversity into these beautiful people to bear witness to his good news. And we need one another to do that. And as you join the family, you join the family business. You join God's mission of bearing witness to the mystery of the gospel. 
Friends, if you already trust Jesus and he's already dwelling in your heart, notice that Paul still prays this for the Ephesians. Right? There's a, a deepening possible. He prays for deep roots and firm foundations in Christ's love. They'd be rooted and established in, in love. So how might you go deeper in Christ's love this year, deeper in his word to you, deeper in prayer and fellowship with God? We can always keep growing deeper in Christ's love. And so that's the first way to enter the mystery, to let Christ dwell in our hearts by faith. That was the first way. That's two. There's a second way. Uh, I want us to have a go, actually, at this second way in just a minute. Look at how Paul participates in this reality. He kneels to pray. He doesn't just talk about this uh, good news. He prays for the Ephesians. He prays that God would help them to go deeper with Christ. Um, In his commentary on this passage, uh, John Stott, who is um, an English minister, said, One of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of their prayers and the intensity with which they pray them. Now, if that's true, then uh, I stand convicted. As I read a prayer like Paul's, I'm struck by the, the smallness, the shallowness, um, the self-focusedness of my own prayers. Paul kneels to pray. We usually sit to pray. We take up whatever position is comfortable. In the ancient world, Christians stood to pray. But Paul kneels. That's how desperate and eager he is to see these Ephesians grow in Christ. He wants to see God grow strong roots in this church. In all our diversity and different backgrounds, I'd love for this same passion to unite us. I'd love for this same desperation to unite us. I'd love us to share this passion for the church and to express it in fervent prayer. Prayer is one of the ways that we express our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for their growth in Christ. We pray for our unity in the faith. It's also a way that we express our concern for those who haven't yet been invited. We pray for them to hear and to respond to Christ. We pray for God to raise up people who will proclaim the gospel with courage and faithfulness. So, brothers and sisters, I'm going to finish in just a moment and I want to invite you to to do this, to to kneel and to pray, to unite together in our diversity, to unite in prayer. Let's kneel to pray. Let's enter the mystery. Uh, You can do that uh, now. We're going to have some prayer points up on there. I encourage you to to pray with a couple of people around you, just in ones or twos or threes. You can pray for some of the concerns that we see in this passage. I've pulled out some there. Uh, you might have some other things that uh, you would like to pray as well. So I'll give you a few minutes for that now and then I'll wrap us up in a few minutes. Let's kneel to pray.